and welcome to Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, Director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. We are recording this on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, although you probably won't be hearing this for a few days after we record. Uh, We have a special guest on the show today that we're excited to share with you. And our guest will be talking about a case from the D.C. Circuit. But for First, I want to introduce to our listeners a familiar voice, and that's my colleague, Erica Smith-Ewing, who will be talking about a case from the Ninth Circuit. So, Erica, welcome back to Short Circuit. Thanks for having me. And turning to our guest, her name is Kristen Vanderplas Lafiniere. She is a, a practitioner in West Texas, in Lubbock, Texas. Texas. She's a graduate of Texas Tech University School of Law and um, also a clerk for Justice, not Judge, then Justice Don Willett uh, back when he was a Twitter laureate of Texas. Uh, And she also, speaking of Twitter, is a big participant in the appellate Twitter community um, and including Teeny Law, which I'm interested in asking her a bit about. So, Kristen, welcome to Short Circuit. Thanks so much for having me. So, Kristen, tell us a bit about your practice and also kind of what's so special about teeny law. Uh, we have a we have a lot of lawyer listeners, of course, but we have a lot of listeners who aren't lawyers. And so they might not get, you know, what's the difference between, say, big law, uh, medium sized firms and then teeny law. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, teeny law is a, a little bit of an advertising shtick that some of us, particularly in Texas, who are solo practitioners or in very small firms, kind of tried to coin because we just face different challenges and different aspects of the legal industry than those who are in firms that have a hundred or more lawyers. We just look at different things and we wear a lot of hats. And so we kind of used it starting on Twitter as a little spot for us to talk to each other and find each other. And it's kind of taken off a little. I, I think we've been able to find a lot of solo practitioners throughout the country that, again, they face a lot of the same issues, whether they're in Michigan or Idaho or Texas. And so it's been it's been a fun community to be a part of. Now, every, I don't know if Erica would say the same thing, but over the years when I've talked to people who, you know, we're at a a standard law firm and then they go out on their own, almost 100% they say, I am so glad I made that move. Um, It sounds like you maybe made that move from the beginning, but I mean, why is it so uniform? Is it, is it the obvious that you, you, can set your own hours because I can see that, of course, the, the, the other side is you have no one to fall back on uh, when, when times get really busy, um, when times get uh, dry and you don't have the phone ringing, times, times can get a little tough. Um, you don't have the facilities that big law people have. What, what, do you, what is maybe special about that that some people might not realize? Sure. So I was at a firm for the first couple of years at at my practice. It was a small firm. There were only about seven or eight of us. So relatively small for Lubbock, that's relatively big, but that's that's not much of a bar. Uh, And and went out on my own right in the middle of COVID in 2020. And so that was its own adventure. But I I do think you're right. You really hit on all of the topics. On, On one hand, my husband and I are able to set our own hours. And because we're able to take home anything that we make minus expenses, we can work 
work quite a bit less. Um, so we do a lot of volunteering. We do a lot of pro bono work for nonprofits and things of that nature that we just have the ability to do without having to ask for permission or look at billable hours or anything like that. We can just use our time in a way that we want to and have a lot of family time. Um, when I went out on my own, my husband was an assistant DA and now he's joined me at the firm. So it's just the two of us. But you're right. A lot of the challenges are similar. We don't have a paralegal. We don't have an assistant. I get to do all the admin work, including figuring out how to mail something certified for the first time ever, which was way <laughs> harder, way harder than it should be or I thought it would be. So the, the number one thing I miss in a paralegal is having to mail all of my own letters and figure out this weirdly complicated issue. But yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I'm probably never going to go back, um, not just because it's been financially stable for us and, and we've actually made more, which is great, um, being out on our own than we probably ever could have made at a firm in Lubbock. But beside that fact, we just get to do what we want, get to do what we love. And we love being lawyers again, which is something we had kind of started to be frustrated with what it meant to be a lawyer. And now we like it again, get to wake up in the morning and be a lawyer instead of have to wake up in the morning and be a lawyer. And your practice is truly general practice. You do you do transactional stuff, but you also, uh, of course, do litigation, including some appellate work. I do. We don't do family law or criminal law, mostly because of my husband's former job. I don't think people typically want former DAs as criminal defense attorneys all of the time. Um, but no, we do business law, estate planning, and then um, we both do civil appellate, although I probably do a bit more with my past clerking and, and such. So I do a decent amount of Texas appellate work throughout the state, and then I'm barred in the Fifth Circuit and at SCOTUS as well. Well, let's turn to that appellate work and um, some gentlemen who had to go to the D.C. circuit to be able to do something that I have to say I have absolutely no inkling of trying to do, which is go through basic training with the Marines. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So so this is a case, as you said, out of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, the D.C. Circuit issued their opinion right before Christmas, actually. I think it was like December 23rd um, of last year. And these were uh, several gentlemen who are Sikhs. So if your listeners don't um, know about this, this is a, a religion that's actually very prevalent. One of the not just largest religions in the world, but one of the fastest growing religions in the world as well. And they have very specific tenets to their faith, in particular, um, any male who's in their faith uh, cannot cut their hair and are supposed to wear beards. There's also a certain number of other things, such as depending on how far they've gotten in their practice of this religion and how high they want to go. They might have certain clothing requirements, keeping their head uh, covered, might have specific things they need to, to wear under their clothing as well. And so they asked the Marines if they could have accommodations from a few of these basic grooming techniques that the Marines typically required during basic training, which for our purposes are cutting of the hair and being clean shaven during the 13 weeks of basic training. They asked for those accommodations and were denied for basic training. And so after they went through about two years of administrative appeals trying to get that decision overturned, it eventually sued for the right to join. We had these gentlemen come uh, to the district court and they sued under the uh, First Amendment rights uh, to their religious freedom and being able to practice their religious uh, 
beliefs freely. Um, and then also, of course, sued under RIFRA and said that these uh, lack of accommodations were not appropriate because they were just specific to their religion and they also weren't in line with other accommodations that were given for other reasons, such as medical accommodations um, and even accommodations given uh, to other genders, such as the women who were in basic training were allowed to do things that they were now not being allowed to do. Uh, the district court uh, did not allow them to have a preliminary injunction, and that's really what this case is. It's kind of a unique interlocutory preliminary injunction, which for your listeners who aren't lawyers means the case is still going down at the lower court, but the, the plaintiffs asked the court to allow them to enlist right away while the actual lawsuit was still going. So the district judge said, no, you can't have that injunction. We're not going to allow you to enlist while the case is still going going. We just need to keep the status quo. And you're just going to have to wait to enlist until I decide whether or not it's appropriate for them to give you accommodations. And that's one of the types of decisions that plaintiffs are allowed to ask a higher court to look at before the whole case is over. So that's what our plaintiffs did here. They asked the D.C. Circuit to look at that decision on the preliminary injunction and, again, allow the them to enlist into the Marines, start basic training, even while the lower lawsuit was still going. And just, again, a few weeks ago, the D.C. Circuit granted that as to two of the three of them and said they are allowed to enlist. And in fact, the Marines are ordered to allow them in, to enlist and start basic training in the middle of this lawsuit. And then one of them had had some scheduling conflicts and they weren't sure he actually was ready to enlist at that moment. And so they kicked it back and said, figure out what he's going to do. And if he's going to enlist, he's allowed to enlist too. If he's going to wait, then of course, we're not going to force him to enlist if he still needs to wait a little bit based on his schedule. But the merits of what he was asking for, they found in his favor too. And the two biggest things that we're looking at here, since it's not the end of a lawsuit, most of the time when we see appellate cases, whether they're federal or state, the underlying dispute has already been settled and the circuit court or the court of appeals or whatever we're looking at, they're deciding the whole thing. And again, that's not what the court was doing here. The court was deciding the really narrow issue of in the middle of this lawsuit, should we let these gentlemen enlist while the lawsuit's still going on? And so they weren't looking at everything. They were looking at this really narrow preliminary injunction issue. But the biggest thing that the Marine Corps was saying that they they needed them to come into basic training and they needed them to shave and they needed them to cut their hair uh, because that is what the unit cohesion needed and that the national interest of security and national security meant that every single Marine entering in basic training needed to do the same thing. They needed to, in fact, it's it's pretty strong language. They need to strip down their individuality and become a unit is, is really what the Marine Corps said. And and uh, the court agreed that the, the military has a really strong interest in that and that that's a really not just a good idea, but a really important function of basic training and in joining um, whether it's the Army or the Navy or the Marines, there's a there's a high, high interest in making sure that the individuals learn how to become a unit. Um, and so they recognized that the military had a lot of reason to do that, but really went through a litany of explaining why in this particular case, this didn't seem to be the kind of thing that would break unit cohesion at all. And so if we look at, say, the shaving and not being able to to wear beards, the, the biggest thing that seemed to matter to this court 
is that this was only about basic training. The Marines had, for all three of them, already granted accommodations to do exactly what they were asking to do during basic training once they passed basic training and went into the Corps as as a full member. And so they already had said, yeah, you'll be allowed to do that, just not for 13 weeks. And so the court found that to be particularly demonstrative that this wasn't going to hurt the national interest, because of course we're not actually deploying people who are still in the middle of basic training, and so it's not as if they're out on a battlefield. And clearly the Marine didn't have a problem with them being out on the battlefield or on a ship or what have you with these accommodations. And so they weren't really able to articulate a good reason why for 13 weeks out of their entire service time, that was the most important. They couldn't do something. Um, And they also pointed to several other things that the Marines allowed accommodations during basic training. So there's uh, several types of skin diseases that make it extremely uncomfortable or even in some cases dangerous for the person who has this type of skin disease to shave. Um, And the Marines and every other military branch allows an accommodation to either not shave or to do, you know, shave and, and groom just slightly and clip instead of shaving an entire beard. That's already allowed, and that apparently doesn't hurt unit cohesion enough in in basic training to allow those service members to go through the 13 weeks. And they also had a really interesting point that I found when I was reading it, is that since we have an integrated basic training now, which means men and women train together, women don't have to have a buzz cut, right? They're allowed to have their hair really as long as they want to, as long as it's uh, very appropriately kept and appropriately groomed. And there's no uh, recommendation that any kind of shaving is necessary for women in basic training either. And the, the court made what I thought was a pretty astute point that if a male Marine or, or a, a male in basic training can look to the left and see a woman with long hair and look to the right and see a Sikh with a beard, that's probably not any different. That probably doesn't have anything to do with unit cohesion. And so ultimately found um, not just that the Sikhs had um, a, a particular reason and a compelling uh, burden that they were able to have this substantial religious belief that was very much a tenet of their faith, but more appropriately that the the Marine Corps had just not in any way articulated an appropriate way why the compelling interest was actually connected to what they weren't allowing. Recognize they have a compelling interest, but they just couldn't draw that line appropriately. And apparently at oral argument and in the briefs, the government really couldn't give an answer for why all of these other things were allowed but not this particular thing that they were asking for. Yeah, I was really struck when reading this opinion how the government really didn't have a compelling interest at all, not only because of all the accommodations that you just said, Kristen, including like listing eight different acceptable hairstyles for women, but that the the Navy has already accommodated Sikhs. So do you think that the, the Marines really were concerned specifically about Sikhs, or are they worried more about opening the door to something else down the road? Like, what was, why are they fighting this so hard? 
So I I have a thought about that, and it's more a personal one, I suppose, than a legal one. So um, I have several family members who are in the Marine Corps. I have uh, a lot of love for the Marine Corps. Uh, my my husband and his family are Air Force. I mean, we, we have a lot of military background. And my initial inclination is that the Marine Corps was going to absolutely hate the court reminding them that they were part of the Navy um, <laughs> and that they, they really want to be... They really want to be their own branch and really don't appreciate being reminded that they actually fall within the U.S. Navy, which, of course, they do. But they they're very individualistic. And even reading through um, the briefs and the court's opinion, that really appears to be the biggest thing to me is that they really don't want to say, well, here's what the Army does and here's what the Navy does and here's what the Air Force does and here's what the Coast Guard does. Well, we're our own thing. We're an expeditionary force that's totally different than every other branch. And here's why you should treat us differently. Um, I, I, that's the only thing that makes sense to me, because as you pointed out, Erica, every other branch does this in the middle of basic training or whatever their initial training is called in that branch. They accommodate not just religious accommodations, but specifically accommodate Sikhs and these exact things that were being asked for. And so there was just really not a good reason, except we're special because we're Marines, um, you know, oorah, and that's great. But I that really seemed to be the biggest issue. But it is kind of shocking to me that with all of the other branches and the president having weighed in and so many other external forces coming in and saying this doesn't make any sense, that they still kept with it and are still making that argument. The only thing that makes sense to me is they want to be an individual branch. I like how they they also pointed the court at one point pointed out that um, in in early in the early republic in in the navy they were uh, so sailors were allowed to have some kind of ponytail, which of course is what men often wore back then. So I guess they they didn't need it for basic training at that time. Another point that the court got into, which is more of a, a technical issue and and it seems to me i haven't read the district court opinion but it seems to me this could be what was going on at the district court is that the usually a preliminary injunction as the dc circuit points out is supposed to preserve the status quo so basically what was going on at the beginning of the lawsuit so when we at ij go in and we try to enjoin say a law that's being enforced against someone the status quo is what they were say doing with their speech or their business or their property before the law was enforced against them or before the law was adopted. Here, though, the preliminary injunction is to allow them to enter basic training, which means because the case, basic training is only 13 weeks and the case is going to go more than 13 weeks, after the, after the preliminary injunction is obeyed, that case is going to be over. And they question whether, you know, whether they should have a higher standard because some circuits, I guess, have said there's a higher standard for that type of preliminary injunction where it's not really enforcing the status quo. Um, and they said, well, we didn't need to get into that essentially because their claim is just so strong under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, but I that, you know, that doesn't come up as much as you might think in in, in preliminary injunctions. And so... Um, I think that, you know, something for maybe listeners to take away from who, who practice in in uh, in the area where you're, you're asking for a preliminary injunction sometimes is that are you asking for something beyond the status quo? Because that's going to raise an eyebrow or two. 
Absolutely. And it's not a, a, a few of their sister courts. I mean, if, if my notes are right, it's the second, third, fourth, seventh, and 10th at least who have said we should look at this differently and we should have a heightened standard if a preliminary junction would do exactly what you just said, like essentially end the case because the biggest thing everybody's arguing about will already be over by the time the court issues a final decision below. Um, And I thought it was interesting. The court said, you know, really acknowledged there's a lot of our sister courts who do have this standard, but really it wouldn't matter because I, I believe it was no less than six times in this 40-page opinion, the court said, this isn't just a good case. There isn't just a likelihood of success on the merits. We really can't see a way that these plaintiffs wouldn't go below. And so even though there normally uh, would be a pretty substantial risk of this prejudicing the other side, that's just not present in this case because they're going to win. And therefore, we think it's appropriate to give them the preliminary injunction now. It was really strong language, but I do think it is important to know you know, whether this is moving forward, a DC standard saying we're not going to uh, adopt that higher standard. I think it's better probably to read it as we're not going to do it in this case. And we're going to kind of reserve whether we're going to accept that new heightened standard or not. The facts were just so specific in this case, we wouldn't apply it. Or even if we did, they would win that too. Uh, But definitely important to know in several of these other circuits, you're going to have to meet that heightened standard. And unless you have particularly egregious facts like you do in this case, pretty good chance you're you're going to have to have a lot more facts um, than you would just win below to win at the circuit court. Well, this is a case, of course, involving uh, the military. Uh, the case name, by the way, is, Ber- is uh, uh, Singh versus Berger. Um, so in cases against the military, it's often very hard to win because of the great deference that the court's give to um, to the armed services, although this is an exception. Now, another area where there is great deference given to the government, um, well, there's a lot of those areas, actually, but one of them is zoning. Now, we have talked a bit about zoning on the podcast before. We had um, a uh, an entire show devoted to uh, zoning, and uh, we had Nolan Gray on on his book, Arbitrary Lines, last summer. Uh, talking about all the bad things that zoning can do. And so we have another case today talking uh, about that that talks about zoning that has great deference, but where the plaintiffs won. So Erica, how did that happen? This case, Sokol Recovery LLC versus City of Costa Mesa in the Ninth Circuit. This is a Ninth Circuit case that came out last week about a zoning restriction on sober living homes which are homes for people recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. And the issue in this case is whether the zoning restrictions discriminated against those with disabilities in violation of federal and state law. And this opinion is by Judge Mark Bennett. Also on the panel were Circuit Judges Kim Wardlow and sitting by designation Gary Katzman. So let's start with the facts. The city of Costa Mesa in California decided it wanted to restrict how many sober living homes it had in its city. So it enacted zoning ordinances in 2014 and 2015, stating that sober living homes could not be within 600 feet of either each other or of an alcohol and drug treatment center. And the record reflected it did this because it thought the homes were harmful to neighborhoods. 
residents had come out and said they didn't want these homes near them, that these people living there were riffraff, uh, even though the court didn't reference any evidence showing that anyone living in one of these homes had actually caused a problem. They harmed the neighborhood character, I believe the court said. <laughs> yes, that's the, the restriction we always see in these zoning cases is, oh my gosh, this is going to destroy our neighborhoods based on no evidence whatsoever. Side note, I'm not sure how it would protect neighborhoods to prevent these homes from being near an alcohol treatment center. That seems pretty backwards to me. Uh, and you think that having a place for those struggling with addiction would actually be a good thing for your neighborhood and closing them down could cause real issues, but the city did not agree. So what exactly do we mean by a sober living home? So this case involved two types of of these homes under the zoning code. In single family neighborhoods, we're talking about homes with six people or less, plus they had a manager living there. And in multifamily zoning districts, they were a little bigger. It's a home that could have six or more people. And very importantly, in the city's definition of sober living homes, it specifically stated that these homes were meant to treat people with disabilities and handicaps. The exact word it used were people considered handicapped under federal and state law. That will become very important later. <laughs> All right. So, and, and this is also important to note, if, if you don't have experience with disability law, it, it is black letter law that someone who's recovering from addiction and alcohol are legally considered disabled. So, that, so that's not in dispute. Anyway, the effect of these ordinances was immediate and quite serious. Uh, existing homes were not gra grandfathered in. So even if you have been operating successfully for years without bothering anybody, the law still applied to you. Uh, Costa Mesa is a city of about 100,000 people. It had about 90 sober living homes. But after this ordinance passed, 72 of them shut down. So huge impact. Now, the ordinances did have a provision allowing sober homes to seek a waiver, kind of like a variance. They called it a reasonable accommodation. But this process had no standards. It was up to the total discretion of the city. And even though 52 homes had applied, only three got it. So some of these homes sued the city. And no surprise, they alleged that the ordinances discriminated against the disabled under federal and state law. Specifically, they said the law violated the American Disability Act, the Fair Housing Act, and the California Fair Employment and Housing Act. And all these laws protect people who are disabled from discriminatory zoning restrictions. So I, I do a lot of zoning work, but I'm not a disability lawyer. Uh, I'm assuming many listeners here are not either. So I'm just going to provide the general legal standard under the federal statutes. As a threshold inquiry, to, do, to show discrimination against the disabled, you need to show that the law is actually affecting someone who's disabled. And there is a three-prong inquiry. And if you satisfy just one of these prongs, that's enough. So you could either show a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. You can show uh, the person has a record of having such an impairment, or you can show that they are regarded as having such an impairment. So as I said earlier, if you're a recovering alcoholic or a drug addict, this is black letter law that you're disabled. But there's an important caveat to that. If you are not in recovery, you are not disabled. So if you're still drinking or if you're still doing drugs, you don't count as disabled. And the city tried to exploit this. 
The city's main argument in this case is that unless the plaintiffs can show that every one of their clients was actually recovering and no longer drinking and doing drugs, then the plaintiffs could not show the city was targeting, targeting those that were disabled. And the city even went so far as to say that the plaintiffs had to provide the complete medical records of all of their clients in order to move forward with this lawsuit. Because medical which, records always showed if you, you'd had a relapse or not. Yeah, I, I mean, it was... Well, and that would that would just always be appropriate is just to be able to get into the medical records of people who aren't even parties to the suit, actual patients at these centers. It's I don't understand the problem, Erica. That's obviously happens in every oh, yeah. case. And, and that's not illegal under HIPAA at all to do to provide. Let's just give all this information over to the city. So t- to me, this whole argument that the fact that we're even arguing about whether this law was intended to target to target the disabled was completely bizarre in the circumstances of this case because the city wrote the ordinance to say that a sober living home is meant to treat people who are handicapped under federal and state law. So the ordinance's very definition only covered homes that were treating the disabled. So the fact that we're even arguing about this is insane to me. But nevertheless, the district court granted summary judgment to the city The district court said that because the plaintiffs had failed to show that each and every one of its clients individually were disabled, then it couldn't move forward and it could not prevail. So it went up to the Ninth Circuit, and happily the Ninth Circuit disagreed, reversed, and remanded. And the Ninth Circuit made clear that the plaintiffs only had the burden to show that the ordinances discriminated against the disabled collectively. You don't have to show it on a case-by-case basis. And you certainly don't need to provide medical records to move forward. And the Ninth Circuit found the plaintiffs had probably done more than enough to make this showing under at least uh, two of the prongs that I mentioned before, the the first and the third prong. Uh, I'll note the court also relied in part on an amicus submitted by the United States, which the court found very persuasive. So let's briefly get into these prongs. The first prong, if you remember, is actual disability. And the court said plaintiffs could satisfy this prong on a collective basis by showing that their homes did serve individuals with actual disabilities. And that the plaintiffs here in this case had probably met this burden by submitting evidence of their policies, their day-to-day operations, testimony from their staff, testimonials of those who the homes had helped uh, recover and who were now um, living successful and healthy lives. And Also, extensive evidence that the sober homes took many steps to make sure the clients were not currently using or drinking. And if they were caught doing so, they were kicked out and sent to detox. So Ninth Circuit said that's more than enough. It's not necessary for them to rely on medical evidence. Certainly not enough. Certainly not necessary to go on a case-by-case basis. The other prong the Ninth Circuit addressed was the third prong about whether the city regarded the clients as disabled. And here, as I alluded to earlier, it seemed very obvious the city did regard these folks as, as disabled. The very definition of the ordinance said that. And the city had made numerous statements throughout the uh, hearing process, throughout the variance process, showing it did, in fact, think these folks were disabled. So there's pretty much no way plaintiffs could not prevail under this prong. 
apparently the reason the district court got this wrong under the third prong was because it was applying a, um, the wrong standard, a standard pre-2008 before the standard changed. Uh, the pre-2008 standard which was much stricter. It required getting much more into like the nitty-gritty of what the defendant's subjective mindset was, but that is no longer the standard. Uh, interestingly, under the current standard, another piece of evidence you can consider is whether the defendant's actions were based on unfounded fears and stereotypes, since the regarded as prong concerns how people with disabilities are perceived by others. And this was very much in the record as well. There was a lot of evidence that um, people had unfounded beliefs about these folks. They thought they were riffraff. They thought they were dangerous and violent, just based on stereotypes, not based on any actual evidence. So there really was no real dispute that the city was, in fact, targeting these folks because the city regarded them as disabled. The case was reversed and remanded, remanded for the district court to determine whether there was a material dispute of fact about uh, whether this was targeting this, this, the disabled. But really, after this Ninth Circuit opinion, there's no doubt what the district court's determination should, should be. Very thorough decision. I think it got to the right result. Yeah, I there's so many things it seems ha happened that were wrong in the process of the adoption of this ordinance and, and also in the in the lawsuit itself. But I mean, but like one thing I don't get is why these, well, I guess I get why, but the, these facilities weren't, or homes weren't grandfathered, which typically in zoning, zoning even some of the worst of zoning, um, although there are exceptions that Erica has litigated, um, you you grandfather in existing properties. You say, well, no, we're going to have no more auto shops or we're going to have no more, um, you know, any businesses of any kind in this neighborhood, but we're going to grandfather in the existing ones. And here, because of how they structured it, they, if you were too close to uh, another, another one of these facilities, you could not keep operating other than this, the, this exception that they had. And I mean, that those numbers are just dramatic you know, going from, you know, over eighty percent or so of the of of these businesses had to shut down, or I, businesses, but their homes for people had to shut down. That itself is just a massive zoning problem. That um, you know, I don't understand. Maybe it's something with California law. I don't even understand how that was able to to happen. And then, secondly, um, it seems like this is a case. I, I'm just guessing. But no, dealing with cities and their ordinances and their how their city their city attorneys work, I'm guessing no one just thought this was an ADA problem, a disability problem, where they write disability into the law and then discriminate against people on that basis. So, you know, usually I, I heard once that city attorneys are paid to do what the city council wants to do. And that's pretty much what happened in this case. And obviously, the city council, the, the city attorney, wasn't very clever in crafting the law to try to get um, around this effort. But it shows you, you know, how much deference even then is given, even in the context of say the when you have the the Americans with Disabilities Act hanging over you, which you usually wouldn't in a zoning case have something some federal law actually assisting you in that in that regard. Even then, it got through right the district court. Uh, and had, they had to go to the Ninth Circuit, which shows you that usually, and you know, it, close enough for government work when you're a city attorney actually is. Well, I was I was thinking the same thing, Anthony. If 
you can write this, hey, we're targeting the disabled and handicapped <laughs> literally into the words of this statute. You know, telegraphing in every way possible your actual intent under the statute and the district court, even under the old standard, can say, you know, we don't think that's what you meant. And so essentially we're going to rewrite this statute to mean it doesn't target the disabled at all. And also, you know, you just win on everything. But I I never want to give city attorneys ideas for how to write statutes more vaguely so that they maybe can pass muster. But this definitely wasn't that case. I was kind of confused, even under the old standard, how the district court could have looked at the actual wording of the statute and still decided that their intent was not clear. I completely agree. I think this is uh, one of the cases where after you read the district court's opinion, you kind of lose faith in the justice system. And then the Ninth (laughs) Circuit just restored it again. Like, oh, okay. (laughs) On this one occasion, Uh, Of course, we wish that zoning ordinances in other cases uh, had um, a little bit more problem when they come up against, say, the Constitution instead of just uh, laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act. But uh, that's what um, Erica is currently litigating to do. So maybe we'll talk about one of your cases one day, Erica, where um, that actually happens. Yeah. And Anthony, I think you you raise a great point about the grandfathering issue. And even if the grandfathering issue was not there, I do think that this law was susceptible to at least a couple of constitutional challenges that probably if should have prevailed, could have prevailed if it wasn't such a straightforward disability claim. Well, we'll leave it on on a happy note there uh, with a couple of victories against the government, which we, we often like to see here on short circuit. Um, so Kristen, thanks again for coming on. Best of luck to your, um, to your practice in Lubbock. And uh, I guess We'll see you on uh, on Teeny Law sometime. That's right. Follow me on Twitter at KVP Texas or just type in Teeny Law on Twitter and, and follow the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. You bet, Kristen. And thanks so much for coming on, Erica. You can um, also follow Erica on Twitter, although she's not um, quite as, as much as active as Kristen is. But you can also follow her cases at IJ.org. Uh, And we'd like to thank all of you for listening once again. And until next time, I hope that all of you get engaged. Mm